Hi, I'm Janet Tanif, founder and director of the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. You're about to hear one of the highlight sessions of Kambali 2020, a Rebuild Bali Festival, our digital event which featured 134 artists, authors, chefs, activists and changemakers from more than 15 countries. Kambali 2020 was aimed to inspire, excite and revitalise Bali and our arts community. So please settle in and let the magic of our festival continue. Hi everyone and welcome to Kambali 2020, a Rebuild Bali Festival. This is a digital program designed to inspire, excite, reconnect, and revitalize the Balinese and Indonesian community from October 29 to November 8, 2020. Kambali, the Indonesian word for return or comeback, represents revitalization in the face of global challenges. The festival will unite people in Bali and Indonesia together with an international audience at a time when travel is largely impossible and creating connections is more important than ever before. My name is Cynthia Dewi Oka and I am an Indonesian poet and writer originally from Denpasar, Bali. My family migrated to Canada in 1995 when I was 10 years old but for the past eight years, I've been living in the United States. I am very excited to be talking today with one of my literary heroes, Edwige Dantica. Edwige was born in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and emigrated to the U.S. in 1981. She is the author of numerous critically acclaimed works spanning not only multiple genres, but geographies and generations. She is a 2009 MacArthur Fellow and the winner of the 2018 Neustadt Prize for Literature. Her book, The Art of Death, Writing the Final Story, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award for Criticism in 2017. And her latest work, Everything Inside, which I devoured in one sitting, won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Best Fiction last year in 2019. Edwish, thank you so much for making the time to talk with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, I want to start by asking, how are you and how is your family doing? I'm doing okay. And my, you know, given everything and my family's doing all right. Um, for the last couple of months, we've been here in Miami um, with my, you know, with my daughters and my mother-in-law who uh, spends a lot of time in Haiti. And so this morning was a kind of a sad moment for our family. She decided to return to Haiti um, today. So we're actually just coming back from, from the airport. And um, so we're a little sad about that, but, um, but yeah, we're, we're hanging in there. Have the you know, social, the new, the new normal, the social, political, economic conditions created by the pandemic. I mean, this is obviously affecting your family with what's happening right now. And last time when we talked, you know, you were managing the kids who are in school virtually as well. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering as well, 
Um, has it affected also your writing practice during this time? And um, if so, how? Well, I think, you know, when, when um, in March, when we all first kind of went inside, when um, uh, I have two daughters, when they stopped going to school and we had to sort of limit our, our emotions, initially there, it was really kind of um, nesting, right? Making sure everyone was okay making sure everybody is home, I, you know, the schooling was going okay, and our neighbors, some of whom are elder people who are alone, making sure everybody was uh, set, because uh, in Florida, we have a kind of um, a culture of, like, just getting ready for an announced disaster, because we have hurricane season, right? And whenever that happens, you... And so I remember when I first started going to the supermarkets to get supplies, it had that same kind of feeling where people were just kind of really rushing and we didn't know how long and what this was exactly. But as the months went on, you know, there was, of course, a lot of sadness. My, my parents um, uh, had friends. Both my parents have passed on long ago, but they have friends who have also passed on from this. And then, you know, you kind of gradually move into this new reality of even um, new ways of communicating with people, new ways of seeing people, and also new ways of grieving because you can't really go and see people. And of course, in the area that I'm, there's a lot of hardship because we, again, in Miami, it's a culture that's based on a lot of tourism and, you know, and hospitality. And so a lot of people have lost work. So it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a continuing crisis, uh, certainly, around here. Personally, for me, uh, I have not been able to really concentrate on longer work. I've, I've been trying to write mostly shorter pieces. In a way, it's kind of like going back to more of your, kind of like your type of practice as a poet, right? Um, and even though I'm, I know that some poet poems might take a long time, but I think it's easier, for, I found it easier to work in in these shorter type of bursts. How about you? Um, I have actually, what's interesting is during the pandemic, um, initially very similar with what's going on. Um, I'm in New Jersey. So initially we were hit really hard. Um, and it looks like cases are rising again uh, for the winter season. Um, but we were pretty on top there with kind of the spread of infections. And um, we don't have any family around. Uh, my family, it's either they're either in Indonesia or in Canada. So we're like 3,000 miles apart. And I actually um, made a big shift with like leaving um, a national organizing job, like in the middle of the summer, because it was just there was just too much to take care of. Like everything had to be contained inside the house and um, a lot more reproductive labor. Um, and I was also finding that just emotional equilibrium in the family took more time for mm -hmm. to manage because it's it just anxieties are so high. Um, my son is entering his final year of high school and I've also actually, I actually expanded my writing practice from poems to short stories during this mm -hmm. time because I was finding that um, it gave me a form to sort of leave reality for mm -hmm. a little bit, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. 
kind of yeah you know, absolutely in this other space yeah mm-hmm. like to leave a little bit of the usual which That's right. which I yeah which I find for me in writing essays at this time mm-hmm. is kind of a kind of documentation which is yeah. really mostly what I've been writing and, and because in terms of responding to something as opposed to just kind of you know just like tugging something out of myself like like whole whole cloth right like inventing feels a little bit futile in this moment um <laughs> and I know that when I do get another burst there'll be like it would have been building up but right now it just feels like my biggest urge feels more towards documenting like I feel like I want to when I look back, you know, if I'm blessed enough to still be here like 10, 20 years from now, I want to look back and say, oh, this is what I was thinking and this is what I was feeling. And so it's almost like keeping, I feel like these pieces that I'm writing now, whether they're related to the moment or not, but they will still be markers for me that I'll still be able to recall what was happening around them. Right, right. This actually, this is a perfect segue because you're talking about documenting this moment. And um, from our last conversation, um, just chatting briefly on the phone, I noticed, you know, you are an extremely astute and attentive observer of political life, um, including here in the United States, um, especially right now. And um, something I've been thinking about is that as immigrant artists, we often have an expanded frame just by virtue of the fact that we've lived in or been shaped by other parts of the world, um, other histories, other kinds of political cultures that are, you know, actually really affected by U.S. politics, but often sort of silenced within the discourse. And um Growing up in Indonesia, for example, under the New Order regime, it like shaped everything from my access to literature because of censorship and also dynamics within my family because there was so much fear. And um, you are a historian um, as well, right, in many respects of your people, both in Haiti and the diaspora. So I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you're making sense of some I think that, you know, the language of the rise of authoritarianism in the U.S. has become rather mainstream now. A lot of people are commenting on this. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that um, as a Haitian-American artist. Well, I think you're right about that that extended frame um, in the sense that um, it's, you know, after the um, murder of George Floyd, I uh, wrote an article uh, for the, in the New Yorker called So Brutal a Death that gave me an opportunity to like, concretely um, define sort of everything I was feeling in that moment of, of George Floyd and what I was hearing from many um, immigrant families around me. You know, for example, when I, uh, I remember the first, uh, one of the first protests I went to was um, in my, you know, when I was about 1920, uh, and Yusuf Hawkins, a young man, had been killed uh, when he went into Bensonhurst uh, to buy a car, and 30 white young men killed him. And and part of what I remember, like what struck me about that, I mean, I knew about racism, I knew, but it seemed to me kind of like the uh, 
the torture that was part of so many of these, uh, you know, of the dictatorship. We had fled or or things you hear about totalitarian regimes around the world where uh, someone can be persecuted and like really executed uh, publicly for who they are, for what they look like and so forth. And um, and then the, the, and how that's reacted to, of course, has a lot to do with what like, what the state represents. Is the state a friend of the person who has his knee on the neck of the person on the floor? Or is the state a friend of the person on the floor? Is the state defending the person on the floor? So this was, you know, one of these moments where the way people reacted had a lot to do with sort of what kind of society we were living in. And sadly, you know, I mean, we saw the, the, the power of the populace, right? The power of people uh, to rise. But what we were getting from the top was like very different. And so much of what's happening now, you could see like it's, it's stuff that the United States used to chastise other countries about, right? Like just uh, the calling for the uh, arrest or even... I mean, I contributing to like the, the the near assassination of people who are your enemies, calling the press the enemy of the people, all of these like these slides down towards authoritarianism. It's it's just really, uh, it's 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 very uh, frightening, and it, but it's recognizable to I think a lot of people who have lived through it before. You know, yeah. for example, you know we um, there there. People now who are like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do election night? What if there's, you know, what if there's violence? And, you know, things that really you, you know, people might, who are voting, it's not out of the realm of possibility that if you're in one of those states, you're going to vote and some armed people might be driving by you, intimidating you, right? I mean, that's that's not happening elsewhere. So I, I think um, that's something that a lot of other, if you've, if you've lived under a certain regimes you recognize, but then I think now more and more Americans are also starting to recognize that, that they're sliding um, in, a, in a very uh, scary direction for their, for their country. Yeah, it's, um, I kept saying in the last four years that there were just moments of deja vu, just even in the ways that people around me were talking, like it felt like this separation and also conflation at the same time of the past and present. And the kind of paradox right now, I think I'm struggling with where we have like, you know, obviously Trump being like this strong man or posing as this strong man leader. Um, and a kind of vacuousness in alternative forms of leadership right now um that is both it's like I, th I think we're all you know as many of us are obviously trying to course correct do whatever we can to course correct i'm like organizing with the indonesian community right now here to try to turn out votes um and what do you i think uh, uh just kind of to follow up on that um are there sort of like lessons that you have learned from your particular history in terms of how to face this moment of incredible um, uncertainty and um, yeah, repression in many ways? 
Well, I think um, one of the things that uh, people have over relied on that's proving to be sort of shaky ground is the checks and balances, right? People are like, oh yeah, that won't happen because we like, you know, they'll catch it with this, like the judiciary will catch it, the legislature will catch it. And uh, I think this this period has shown us the uh, the sort of the precariousness of these checks and balances, right? And that's what, uh, that's, that's how authoritarianism happened, like the erosion of these checks and balances, you know, like the press, the, you know, the legislature, the judiciary, and those things are, are more and more eroding away. But um, one thing that we have seen, and I think that's been somewhat reassuring in this past period, especially um, after the murder of George Floyd, is that people are willing, you know, to take to the streets and to make, you know, to to peacefully protest and make their voices heard. And it was shocking how many people were doing it in a pandemic, right? Yeah. And that shows you the urgency of the of the situation for me. And and we've seen we've seen how many people have uh, started voting early. I think that's the, you know, I, I, I've gone through these herbs and flows and, you know, where people were uh, really active um, in the movement against apartheid, for example, and there was a whole time where people were, seemed like there was kind of um, not reacting. And then there was the uh, war in Iraq where people were protesting. And, and now, you know, I think now it's just kind of um, young people and you have like multi- generational, multiracial coalitions, I think that to me is, um, is hopeful. Like that's the, the streets, the people are the checks and balances now. And I think people have realized that, like we can't count on, uh, you know, just to see what's happening. We can't count on the, on the, the, these government bodies. Like we can't count on the attorney generals. We can't count on the Supreme Court. We can't, so, you know, it's, I, we, we, we have us, you know, I think that's what I, that was really the power of that. And we've seen it all over the world, this, this whole, the last couple of months, right, where people have really, have almost seemed like in a time where we're supposed to be self-isolating, where people have realized, have re, rediscovered the power of their numbers together, like if they show up together for a cause. Um, and that's what we saw all summer when it was actually dangerous to be next to another person. But people realized the power in numbers, which is, which is a very powerful counter to, to everything. And, and, in, and there are places where um, people have done it, like, like in Haiti the last year, you know, people have been protesting against their president and they've done it against a lot of violence, a lot of, you know, a lot of, we have a lot of risk to their lives, but people still come out in Haiti and Belarus and all these other, uh, in, in large numbers. And we saw it on the streets of America um, this entire summer. <clears throat> and and I think that's, that's what will be on the other end of whatever happens. Like people, we know that people will are ready to show up. That's right. That's right. Um, there is there is hope to be had and to be cultivated. And um, I want to pivot right now to talking about everything inside. 
Because I think partly also, to me, I can't really see, I can't really see it as separate, like the fact that there has been, you know, in the last couple of decades, more and more um, voices from diasporas from um, Black authors in particular, like really claiming and fighting for an accurate retelling of the many histories, right? Um, And under histories that have been suppressed in the context of the United States, for example, it's been a long fight for people to just be able to tell their stories and to like make characters and historical figures come to life because it's really like um, we need models. I think that uh, in an age of social media and an age of hyper isolation as a result of neoliberal policies that have kind of splintered communities, um, it's almost like that this is where a lot of people are finding their community is also through literature. And um, I wanted to, I have um, several questions, particularly about your new book. And I thought it was really into, because I I read it early this year, um, actually just about when the pandemic hit. And I was like, this is like a prophetic title, (laughs) everything in (laughs) For everyone inside. (laughs) Everyone inside. And um, I thought it was interesting that there there isn't actually a corresponding titular story within the collection, Mm -hmm. which means like, so this is like the the title for this particular collection is so important for kind of framing our experience of all of the stories within it. Um, Can you share how you arrived at this title and what it means to you in relation to this body of work specifically? Well, it's interesting. I'm glad you noticed that there's a, like a really a, a title story because I I really didn't want a title story because I, I think in collections sometimes the title story like guides you to a story that is supposed to be the most important story in the in the collection. And I really wanted every story to have equal footing. Um, but the the title everything inside comes. You know, I live um, in a uh, in Little Haiti in Miami, it's a, a gentrifying neighborhood here. And um, one one day I was walking down, uh, you know, and uh, around my neighborhood, and I saw a, a sign in a window that says, nothing inside is worth dying for. And there was like a, a target and like a big bullseye on the sign. And and I realized, oh, it's one of those warning signs. I mean, that it's basically like the equivalent of stay out. But I thought, like, I thought this is pretty verbose, right? For as a warning, <laughs> like, like why so many words? <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, and but then I thought, oh, it should be like everything inside, right? Like it's it just seems kind of like a a strange thing. And then I thought I have to put that in a story because it just. Uh-huh. It, was, it just kind of captured, uh, and so we decided to initially that the full title of the collection was "Everything Inside Is Worth Dying For," and then I was uh, joking with my editor. I was like, you know, the critics would have fun with that. They'll be like, "Hey, nothing in here is worth dying for," <laughs> <laughs> and so we we decided to just call it "Everything Inside" uh, for short. 
Wow. I'm so glad you told that story. Wow. Okay. That actually does change because I think there was, um, I think for me, definitely the first impression was kind of like a holding Mm. of every single, you know, person within the book. And, um, and I, this kind of like gathering, like I, I could just, I can just like see it. It's, it's like you gathering mm-hmm. and like with arms around. So I think this adds another layer that um, to know sort of like what was the initial full title um, of the, of the storybook. And I really loved, loved the range and the complexity of lives to be found here. And, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I really saw each story as kind of like a case study of the ways in which, you know, history, race, gender, class, positioning inside of the nation or the diaspora, how they intersect in a particular moment or situation. And at the same time, there's this fidelity, this like incredible faithfulness to, um, was like recording and really to like really witnessing the particular agencies and fears and desires of each character. It's like, it's both. And, um, and this is actually like a very consistent characteristic of your work that I teach in my class, Mm -hmm. (laughs) class, because um, something I really deeply admire is that it's like no one is unimaginable for you. And um, there's like this flexibility of mind and heart and language that I think we really, really need right now. Um, Can you share with us what your process is for getting to know your characters? Well, uh, I like this, the notion of like the embrace of of everybody, (laughs) because I I think that goes to the process of, of creating characters is or rather recording characters is that for me like I have to love them on some you know in some way uh even if you like even if I disapprove of them there has to be something redeemable about them to me um and I can't really judge them uh so I feel like I have to be at least intrigued by them so one of the things you know I think in in character uh, formation is that the characters one creates are like the people we meet, right? They're people you meet and you're just like, oh my God, I feel like I've known you my whole life, right? And then there are people that it takes a while to tease out a relationship with them and it builds on, you know, certain moments. And so um, there are characters that are like that, that come just really fully formed and then others that you just really have to go and write several drafts before you fully get them. Um, certainly, uh, and the first, the first uh, characters in, um, in the book, Dosa, you know, that whole group of characters, for me, every, that was many, many layers of writing until I could tease out, like, the distinctive element of each of them and how they come together and how they come apart and and that sort of like comes together as, as you're writing, you know, as I was writing. 
Um, and others, like in um, Hot Hair Balloons, those two characters uh, just came faster because I, you know, sort of like I knew people like that in college, <laughs> like, you know, and so, uh, so that kind of like that idealism I recognize and I have nieces, you know, my, you know, uh, young relatives in college that I'm just like, oh, I know this person. <laughs> I know these people, you know, I know that idealism. I know that sort of, uh, like drive also, you know, they're kind of both, each character is, a, is one side of an, of the same person. The person who is like, you know, the best I can commit to society right now is getting A's, you know. And then the other one who is like, you know, I want to serve, I want to sit in, I want to, you know, travel and help. And so um, those characters came together a lot, like more. They're, they're like the ones that you're just like, oh, I've known you my whole life. And then the others are just like, I, I have to gradually get to know you better. Um, are there particular ones that felt um, like in the book that felt particularly hard to access for you? Like, I really don't like this person, but <laughs> some sort of relationship to them. You know, and this and this book, no. In other books, like in The Dewbreaker, uh, where which is a book about a, a, a man who's a torturer, that one was hard. Like the writing about a, a torturer, um, and but still with him, I had to like, I had to like, what's what's redeemable about this man, right? Who has tortured people, who uh, basically tricked this woman into marrying him, but who got to love, who grew to love him. I, so for so that character was a very hard character to write, but. A couple of years after I was doing an event and a, a man uh, came up to me and said, you know, he said, I read your book and I want you to know that we had no choice. Like he was like one of those people. He was that oh guy. God. Yeah. And he, he said, you know, if we didn't do that, then we would be killed. And it was like now he, you know, he had a soccer club. He helped kids. He was, but like when he, like literally when he was walking up to me, it was like out of the central casting for that for that character. It was like if I were casting someone for the movie, this guy would be the character. So, so sometimes you know, and I and I felt like if I had met him before, I would probably would be like, oh, this is so cheesy, like the torturer who redeems himself, like <laughs> and now helps kids. <laughs> like who's going to believe this stuff? <laughs> like I like I couldn't have written his, but there he was, like standing. Um, right there in front of me, but my the, in this book the characters I don't know maybe it's because a lot of them are are young younger women and I'm sort of easing out of the younger woman stage of my life you know I'm like in my fifties now but I really enjoyed like I enjoyed their company if you will mm. and I remember after reading The Color Purple in one of the editions Alice Walker had a note she's like she thanked the characters for coming. And really, these characters to the to the one I felt like I wanted to thank for coming. I, I really enjoyed writing them. I like I I mean the, the circumstances. Of course, this, the the plots were not always fun, but I really I felt like a, a really deep attachment to each and every one of them. Yeah, I um, as a reader, I too. Get, like, I mean, I think from the other side where um, the stories are so successful at 
drawing us into their lives. And some of these characters, I remember, I mean, there's the story about um, the girl who lost her father. But in the old days. In the old days. Um, and her mom, mom now runs this like Haitian restaurant. And she like goes to Miami and meets his, um, her father's new wife mm -hmm. and their kind of dynamics. And I remember being really particularly drawn to this character because there was this like quiet anger throughout this story as she was struggling and trying to figure out how to grieve this person that she had, that obviously, you know, is part of the reason for her being, but hasn't been in her life um, for, for all of her life, Just didn't even know she existed until, you know, she found out later. But I think that there are moments of these um, characters who have um, trouble connecting Mm -hmm. um, within the book that I, I found especially instructive right now um, in a moment when it, it feels like we're not allowed to take a moment to grieve. Yeah. And even though the situation is different, um, there's like the, the kind of emotional wisdom and practice that is um, contained in the stories. So I'm like, it is instructive even in the sense of knowing like it's okay to feel this way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's okay to not know how to, and to feel like we might come to it too late. So I think that's like something I, I, I worry about a lot um, right now is like how much are we not allowing ourselves to feel? Um, and also that's partly, you know, I think I saw, I grew up in Canada and sort of um, all of the things that my parents um, had suppressed while we were living in Indonesia sort of kind of mushroomed. Um, and in this kind of new context. And it's like, I know it's a source of trauma for me and like fear. Um, and these and, and those stories in particular really helped me kind of like hold that space for myself. So um, just incredible thanks for writing it. <laughs> and, um, I also well, had... Thank you. <laughs> but you know what? I think one of the things like... I feel run through the stories even before this moment for me was uh, rituals, right? Yeah. Um, and how certain rituals are disrupted, certainly by migration, right? Yeah. Our ability to even be in the same country. Because, for example, you know, my parents, uh, when they were, uh, when, when I was two and my dad moved to New York and when I was four, my mom joined him and it took about eight years for us to, uh, my brother and I, to join them in New York. And when my parents were in New York and undocumented, I, you know, they would still talk about it when they were older. Like the hardest part for them of being undocumented was like not being able to attend the funeral of a sibling or, you know, or just not being able to come back for, for certain important moments in the family. Um, and so it's like the way rituals are disrupted by migration, right? The way you can't be there for births or for 
or for death sometimes. And and even now the way that this that it works is that sometimes someone dies and I mean, not even in the COVID moment before that, it took forever to bury them because the, everybody has to fly in from everywhere, right? To be able to attend. Or I, I remember when I was, um, the church my parents um, attended in New York when the shift happens where uh, everybody who died in that, you know, who belonged to that church, like in the 80s, they had their all their funerals, their rites, everything in New York, but then the body was shipped to Haiti to be buried. And I remember like the moment, like in the, in the mid nineties where someone who belonged to the church was on vacation in Haiti and died and they shipped the body to New York. And rather than like, everybody, the family going there, they, you know, then I was just like, whoa, it's like this moment of like the shift in the migration, right? Where there were obviously more people on this side now than on the, you know, than on the other side. And so in that story, I think what that, the, what the, the father's wife is still trying to uphold the sense of few rituals, which is the struggle right now, right? Like, I can't tell you like how many Zoom type funerals or a part birthday parties or like so much that we have to do just the way you and I are talking right now, and not even being able to like touch someone. Uh, you know, um, my like neighbor passed away, and we could like we all we could do is stand out the window, and then just like wave at her family. Whereas, like when my mother died, she was in here with me. She was making us tea, she bought us food. That same neighbor, you know, when she died, there's nothing we could reciprocate in that way. You know, you could drop off some things and, but we couldn't be really an integral part of her of her rituals. Um, and it goes from that to people who can't even hold their loved one's hand in the ICU or, you know, you say goodbye to them at the door. I think there's so much, um, but this kind of trauma too, that we're like, when this is over, that we're going to have to, you know, recover from my parents minister, for example, said this thing, he said, well, when this is over, whenever that is, we'll have a, a memorial for everybody who died in that particular church that my parents belong to. So, and uh, that, that story, when I go back to it, when I think about it, is what I come to, like that sense of so many people we know dying out of sight, you know, out of, out of our reach right now, all over the world. You know, I think that was initially one of the things that struck me the most that, that you can't be with like someone you love at their most vulnerable state. Like you can't even get to say goodbye. If you're lucky, you can do it through an iPad or something, but you know, most people don't even get that. Yeah, that, that resonates so much with me. We're, we're in exactly that, in that situation right now with my grandmother in LA. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we're, it's, and you're waiting and you also can't do anything. And there's all of the um, pressure to keep it together. Mm-hmm. And just kind of like a loss of vacuum for us to, it's weird. It's like everybody has to be so disciplined right Mm -hmm. now. Um, Our self-management. And um, yeah, I think that I will most certainly be returning to, to these stories to kind of guide 
some of what happens next, you know, like even just personally in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have a question specifically also about the story, The Gift, because in many ways, um, a lot of the stories that you like it, I feel like almost every, every story here in this collection tackles a systemic ongoing issue of some nature, whether it is something there's like, um, the focus is on the lives of the characters, but then you shed light on like the caregiving economy, political corruption, um, familial dynamics when aging and dementia enter. Like these are all very kind of like human experiences that kind of become specified and realized in these particular people's lives. In the gift, however, you deal with um, the aftermath of a disaster, the 2010 earthquake in Haiti. And it's through the lens of these two ex-lovers in particular. And in some ways, like a disaster like that disrupts everything. Sort of kind of goes with what you were saying. Like, I mean, ritual rituals, not only the, the doing of rituals gets um, disrupted, but I think that in, in moments like that, perhaps even the meaning of rituals can be thrown into question. Um, because it's such a size, it's like a, you know, seismic event, like literally in this situation. Are there lessons that you feel able to share with us from the process of writing that story, um, almost like a decade out from the moment, right, um, of occurrence that we can learn for when we're thinking about this moment that we're in, the global disaster that we're in? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's it's hard to say because... We have seen unprecedented so much, right? And for, for so many of us, it's unprecedented in our lifetime. But I think um, we, we have to, in many ways, um, draw from this uh, stronger survivors among us, right? And sometimes those people are in our families and, mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes they're in history and um, so I, I keep thinking uh, when it gets really tough here, I think, you know, I think of, of all the people who didn't give up, you know, like um, when you watch the, the, the George Floyd murder, right? you think of all the civil rights heroes, right? And the fight is not finished, right? It's, but there are people who stood up and, uh, in equally tough times or even tougher times. And, and they, they saw possibility and change. They saw the possibility of change. So, and then when I think of, you know, of, of people in my family who, you know, my uncle who survived, like lived, had a childhood during the U.S. occupation of, of Haiti with, with sort of Marines who, his father was hiding from, and you know, just you, I think I think to draw from the power of these stories, which also uh, brings us to the power of stories, right? The power of storytelling, and um, and there's there's enough in history to at least hold us up to see, like you know, uh, others have survived very difficult things to to draw from that. And there are these stories in all our families, you know. There, there are these stories in all our families. And maybe this is a good moment also to honor them because uh, the younger 
people among us, you know, sometimes they're like, hey, you know, it's like that, that, that right. thing that <laughs> we keep trying to tell them. Um, so maybe there might be a little more receptive at that time to hear that story about uh, the grandparent who was heroic, you know, in their own way, uh, to have these sort of wells of inspiration uh, mm. to draw from them from history, but also to draw them with, for our own lives. And that's why, you know, this throughout this whole thing, I was trying to, I was, you know, partially successful to try to get my girls, I said, you know, keep a journal because at some point you might want to, you know, say to, to your, you know, whoever comes after you, like, you know, this is, look what I went through and, and, and I, you know, and I'm, you know, hopefully okay. And, um, and so to have this documentation of, of, of like your journey through this moment and others have had their journey through this moment that we can draw into other moments that we can draw um, inspiration from. And that's what, you know, in that story too. And in the old days that the, the father's mm-hmm. wife, I think was trying to draw out for the, for the young woman. She was, you know, it's like, this is how things were in the old days. And, and we, you know, we managed to make it here. You know. Man, I think you're going to get me to journal now. <laughs> <laughs> and you should. Like, I said partially successful. I, I said partially successful with the young ones in my family because I said it to, when I said it to my niece, she was like, oh, it's all on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, this is kind of where I'm journaling. You know, I said, well, however you journal, it's fine, but. Uh, but for me, what's important is the looking back because I've had my experience with journaling is that when I've journaled, I suddenly see patterns that I missed in my daily life. So I'll go back and I was like, oh, this was a free because we kind of, I think, memory sometimes, you know, revises things for us. And when I go back to some of my journals, I'm like, oh, this was a really terrible time, you know, and then you realize how you you know, you went through it from day to day. So that's what I feel like in the, my practice now is that's why it's more nonfiction based. It's like, I'm not journaling as much, but I feel like these pieces that I'm writing are kind of like not just personal journal, but also a kind of journaling that incorporates the community around me, what's happening around me and, uh, in this really very uh, 2020 that just won't give us a break. <laughs> not at all. It's, yeah. you know, Start a website, catch And there's still more coming of it. You know, it's not over. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I'm, I'm really taking that to heart. I, I stopped journaling um, a couple of a couple of years ago, and um, for another conversation. Um, <laughs> but I think that this is really inspiring to sort of. Um, remember the value of it of like especially in this moment where uh it feels like the forces that be don't want us to reflect to actually mm-hmm. uh, engage with what's going on in in like a deeper level beyond just like reading you know all of the social media and twitter feeds um yeah and we're so bombarded with with so much information you know, and, uh, you know, I have a historian friend who says that, you know, she says it too, it's sort of like history is made, is pierced together these different personal narratives. And we're living through such a moment of a kind of instant revisionism that we don't know what the future narrative will be, you know. 
this summer, I was reading um, Animal Farm with my girls for one of their assignments. And I was like, oh my God, I'm living Animal Farm. <laughs> like, you know, where they sort of rewrite the rules and, and, and you're being told, oh yeah, there were always this, you know? And so, so who knows what like future narratives is. And we, and we have this, I don't know that maybe other generations have had it, but we're having this moment where we're like, we're experiencing similar things with people all over the world who are kind of afraid of a very, you know, we're affected by it differently, but we're all afraid of the same thing, right? And this common experience is forced on us. And I think that's also, you know, going back to, to the protests uh, after George Floyd's murder, that I think, which is also why people all over the world were able to suddenly pick this cause because suddenly we, 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 were, we already had a, a common grievance Right with the with this pandemic, and and then suddenly people could see oh this is the other grievance we have which manifests itself in different ways around you know in the different communities where we are all over the world. So I think that's that's also I I'm very curious to see how and we have technology like we've never had before. We have more technology, for example, than we had you know in September 11 and these other you know, things that felt more, uh, you know, global, you know, in the, the wars and so forth. But there's so much many more ways to record and document and save things. I'm, I'm very curious to see, like, so how this is all written back on. And I think artists will be uh, an important aspect of that. You know, artists who, the, their, their stories, their witness, their interpretation of the moment based on our you know, how our different communities experienced it. Are we experienced as individuals as well? That's right. Um, I think that there's also something about the pandemic where, because it's indiscriminate, right? Like coronavirus doesn't care who it touches. And um, I think for a long time, a lot of folks in more privileged positions um, perhaps we're starting to pick up on the language of um, grievances against racism, against like uh, classism and all of these things, but perhaps could only understand it at a theoretical level. And because, and it's all, sort of like the coronavirus makes what's systemic so obvious. It rises to the top. There's like the bottom level of that you are, everybody is vulnerable to this. And then I think it um, instructs people to be able to see the ways in which that is so much systemically worse for yes. many, many, many people. Yes, and that's what I was, yeah. Knowledge was not there before. That embodied. Yeah. That's, that's, what, that's what I was going to uh, add is that you, you have, I mean, we all everyone's realizing also how vulnerable we are to this thing that we can't see, that can travel. And then we realize how it amplifies existing imbalances, right? So that people who are already more vulnerable in the society die more, get sick more, because they're also, they, they're also the more, more, most indispensable people in the society, right? The, the, you know, they're the frontline workers, they're the, you know, the uh, essential workers. 
So um, yes, it's there is this suddenly we all have a common vulnerability, especially early on when we didn't understand much uh, about uh, how the virus you know functioned, and then we realize oh it's you know oh it's like everything else it's killing more it's you know more of the most vulnerable people in the population. That's right. Um, I have. Uh two last questions for you. They're both kind of big. And um, one is, you know, even like, I feel so incredibly fortunate to be having this conversation with you. Like it's so rare that we actually get to meet our heroes and they are who we think they are. (laughs) And um, I personally want, it would be remiss of me to not say that as an immigrant kid and an immigrant, like a young immigrant writer um, in particular, I really benefited and felt reparented by your work. Like I felt raised by, you know, like this is, look, it's all messed up. This was like the first. (laughs) Because I, yeah, I kept returning to it. And beyond sort of the craft I think there there were possibilities that um, for my life as an immigrant, a girl, a woman, a mother, that I was able to see because of your stories. And at this point, you have a significant body of work. And I would love to hear just how sort of you conceptualize that work at this point in your life, like its arc, its intention, its impact, where you see yourself going next. Well, thank you. This that's, that's very kind. I mean, I when I started, uh, I really was just like it was this hunger to tell stories, and I felt like I was following um, the you know Toni Morrison's dictum, like if there's a book you want to write, but it doesn't. If there's a book you want to read, but that doesn't exist, write it. <laughs> like, you know, um, I'm paraphrasing that, but. And, and there were so many books that I wanted to read that didn't exist um, that I, I felt like, like, oh, I want to write this story that I had not seen before. Um, and it's like I had seen similar stories. There's stories that nourished me just the way that you're talking. And that's like, but so I started like that with that drive to just tell a kind of story. Um, and I think it's important to like for people, for growing creatives, growing writers to, to realize, yeah, it's not all sweet and you're not always going to tell the story that people in your community want to hear. Not, you're not always going to be embraced, but I've always believed that this idea, not everybody who criticizes you is crazy. <laughs> you also have to kind of um, listen to other voices. Um, and so I, and then I followed this other thing too, that, you know, my first editor told me that, you know, she said, when, when, the, when I finished Brother's Memory, the book that you showed, she said, you know, start something before that book is published because th- that way, no matter what happens, whether it's received, because that, you know, the good reception, bad reception, both can mess with a young writer, you know, young writer's mind, right? The good can be like, oh my God, I'm so great. <laughs> you know? And the bad can like really like make you like freeze. So, and she said, you know, always start something new. And that's really, I've always kept that practice. Like when I'm done with something before, 
the other thing is published, I try to start something new to remind me that of like really that first love that, which for me is always the creation, which is always that process mm-hmm. where the work is just mine, where it's like, it's just me and these characters and the development, which is like where I feel most free, where I feel most comfortable. So really that's how I like, I'm always starting over at this point, my, you know, I'm very concerned about repeating myself, you know, like, or, or you know, <laughs> or, or like, just like, like caricaturing myself. So just looking for like really new avenues, new places of growth and, and to continue in that way. And if you're an artist of color, you'll get that, you know, people will are like, oh, write about something else. Or write about like, like, you know, like they, they, they feel like, our telling our stories is in some ways limiting, but I feel like for me, it's to just like really grow and, um, and keep telling stories. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. I, I, um, yeah, I, it's such, uh, it's just like such an effect of the whiteness of the literary industry still that it is considered that way. I remember um, receiving that messaging you know, mm-hmm. as a as a young writer, and um, I think that your body of work really stands as testament to the diverse, the radical diversity is in our people. Yes, and exactly. And that's so yeah, that's so powerful. And I, you know, and I and I, it was so amazing to see like even the great Toni Morrison always had to say that she was like. There is enough here for me to to write about. <laughs> That's right. Never run out. Yes, exactly. And I think it's so, like so limiting, and that that and that limit, you know, that that limited mentality goes to that aspect of like there can only be one writer from this place, also, right? And that whole like publishing from oh, we already have our Haitian writer, we already have our writer from Indonesia, we already have our writer from the so I think that also is it's because like people they, people don't realize like the wealth of our like right the the depth and the wealth of any culture. You know, there's enough stories for like 10 lifetimes <laughs> to be told by one person and several people. And so that is that's I think it's a very that's that is a, a a really powerful thing to, to be countering as one grows as, as a writer in this space from, from, a, from a country that's misunderstood or that people don't know much about exactly that, like that there is like, a, you know, that's so much, you know, for even in one life. I mean, if we were being fully respectful, we say there's enough in one life to, uh, to, to write about for the rest of your life and, the, you know, to not having to be like, Oh yeah, when are you gonna really be a writer and or or you know to 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 like like in order to, to do that you'd have to leave your you know space. If you wanna do that, I mean I think that's fine if a writer wants to do that. Like if that's if that's what you wanna do, that's fine. But for but for people to be just kind of like constantly, you know, there's that famous interview with Tony Morrison. <laughs> like there's several where she's asked that question over and over. <laughs> Right. And every time had a brilliant answer. <laughs> you know. Right. Um, I feel like you've actually already answered this final question that I had, but um, I wanted to, uh, just in case you wanted to say any final words um, before we close out. Um, in Create Dangerously, the immigrant artist at work, you wrote, 
The immigrant artist shares with all other artists the desire to interpret and possibly remake his or her own worlds. So though we may not be creating as dangerously as our forebears, though we are not necessarily risking torture, beatings, execution, though exile does not threaten us into perpetual silence, still, while we are at work, bodies are littering the streets somewhere. In the face of both external and internal destruction, we are still trying to create as dangerously as they, as though each, each piece of art were a stand-in for a life, a soul, a future. I feel like everything you've said really um, confirms this. Um, but this book was published 10 years ago, and I'm wondering um, if you have any final thoughts on what that mandate means to create dangerously right now. Well, one of the things I would I would change, I would expand the pronouns. <laughs> His, her, and they, for sure. Uh, I would be less binary there. Um, mm. But uh, I think, you know, now I would just tag on this thing that, you know, you can tell that I'm obsessed with Toni Morrison, but that she said at a similar um, difficult time where she said, this is exactly when artists go to work, you know no self-pity, no fear, and uh, this is when artists go to work. And it's for each of us to decide what that work means. Um, but this is the time, you know. Um, that's, that's really all I would, I would add to it. Um, because on the surface, uh, it seems like, you know, there's so many different dangers out there now. Now it's like the danger of, like, the physical danger of, of like being next to another person with a virus raging is ill. So that limits how we can, you know, physically organize, physically uh, be collectives, but we also have these other methods. Um, but uh, I know, and I've, and I've to a lot of people who will say, you know, it feels futile, but no to resist against that impulse that, that our work matters that our contributions matter, our voices matter, our stories matter. Thank you so much, Edwish. Thank you. This was wonderful. Thank you for, for having this chat with me. Of course, it's my honor. Everyone, Kambali 20, that was Kambali 20. That was amazing. And also, this festival was made possible with the support of the Yayasan Mudra Swari Saraswati Patron Program and their donors. The patron program was created to seek assistance for the survival of both festivals and the foundation. By making a valuable contribution to the Yayasan Patron Program, you'll be directly involved in delivering both festivals in due time. Your contribution will guarantee the future of Indonesia's most meaningful cross-cultural platform of words, ideas, culture, and the creative arts. Follow at Ubud Writers Festival on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit ubudwritersfestival.com for more information about the patron program. And thank you again, Edwish, for being with us today. Thank you. <laughs>